Welcome to the Dunces Corner. This is a special edition. This is our TFE 2023 edition. What's up, TFE? We have had a fantastic week at the Franciscan Experience. I've been blown away by the quality of the participants, and the Holy Spirit has definitely been at work. And for this special episode, which is actually our third attempt to get a TFE (laughs) episode, we are going to have the participants come on up and they can ask us anything they want about theology, spirituality, or Taylor Swift. (laughs) Joining me today is my good friend and colleague, Dr. David Whitten, the Grand Supreme Chancellor. Dr. Whitten, how's it going? That's great. Looking forward to finally getting a podcast out the door. (laughs) That's right. You have a patio now, so all you need is a podcast episode. And then sitting next to him is Rachel. Hello. How's it going? It's going good. All right. You surviving? Uh, Still alive, you know? How much of a nap do you need? I mean, I did get almost seven hours of sleep last night. <laughs> that ain't almost. bad. That ain't bad. All it's things the most considered. all week. So that ain't bad. Snaps it's not all bad. around. It's not bad. Sitting to my right is our mega mentor, Tomash, also known as Matt. What's going on, Matt? It's, uh, it's going good. Uh, hoping this podcast actually makes it to the uh, the internets. And I'm the only one who pronounces Tomash with a Z at the end. I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's very fancy of you. That's right. And then our graduate, our esteemed graduate, also TFE TFE mom. Yeah. First year on TFE, and I was like, go big or go home. Let me bring my kid. Catherine's back. (laughs) What's up? (laughs) Have any companies paid for tattoos? No, no. You know, I really thought that I was going to get, from that first podcast episode, I thought I was going to get some sponsors. Now we're just going to have to get sponsored by some unnamed Catholic company, you know? Right. Or Canes or Bucky's. Or Canes or Bucky's. Yeah. Any, any of those. Bucky's will work. That's right. Bucky's will work. Yeah. Bucky's, <laughs> I think. Bucky's for life? My kids were we want Bucky's, Bucky's to, cater, to cater pretty much all the meals next please. year. Please. Oh my gosh, please. That's Make right. my job so much easier. That's right. <laughs> So, uh, are you guys ready for some questions? Heck yeah. Okay, we better brace ourselves because there's some uh, smart cookies in the crowd. All right. So, if anybody would like to come on up and take the chair. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. (laughs) First up to bat. He's a quiet one. He never says anything. Yeah, Yeah, you get to wear those cool headphones. They cost about five bucks at Walmart. They remind me of my first We're hoping SpongeBob for at least CD a $10 player. question, though. Yeah, oh, what, what's yeah. your name, sir? My name is Andrew. Andrew, thank you for joining us. This is your second time on TFE. It is. What brought you back? Um, the graces that God has given through TFE and the awesome community. Praise God. You're getting snaps for that. So uh, <laughs> you, you got a question for us? Yes, I do. So I was going to ask about the Immaculate Conception and the teaching and the honorability of Mary and how we should go about that and how God poured out his grace into her through the Immaculate Conception. 
Okay, so you you want to understand better the Immaculate Conception. Correct. Okay, got it, got it, got it. I wish we had a professor here who taught a course on Christology and Mariology. Do you know what <laughs> you know? I wish I had some students who took Christology and Mariology. It's been so long. Oh, look, I happen to have three of them here. So, chime in. Students, tell us about the Immaculate Conception. What Did you, got? you pass the real final exam? <laughs> well, can we at least say what the Immaculate Conception is? Go off, Matt. Matt's like bailing. I will start by saying here's the number one thing that people think it is, but it's wrong. People often think it has to do with the birth of Jesus. Jesus. Does it? No. Okay, so what are we talking about? So we're talking about the way in which Mary herself was immaculately conceived by her mother. That's right. And to say that she's immaculate means... Without original sin. Yeah, she has no sin, no original sin even. And here's what makes this theologically complicated, because Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if all have sinned, how is it that you have a human being who does not even experience original sin? This is the conundrum that faced theologians for a long time. Even someone like uh, St. Thomas and his teacher, St. Albert the Great, taught that because of this uh, teaching of Scripture that all have sinned, they wanted to, on the one hand, hold to what Augustine had said, and Augustine and much of the tradition had um, paid respect to Our Lady by saying there's no way she had any personal sin, right? How could the mother of the Lord have any personal sin? And Augustine would sort of hedge when it came to original sin. And in fact, the time that he talks about it in um, dialogue with Pelagius, he says, um, of that, I mean, we couldn't even speak of such a thing. So he doesn't really answer the question. <laughs> he just kind of says, oh, I want to honor Our Lady, and I'm not really going to talk about it. So Aquinas and his teacher, St. Albert the Great, actually say, and it's partially based on Aristotelian science, that even though... When she first exists, she has original sin. At the time in which she receives a rational soul, she then gets purified of original sin. So that's the claim of Aquinas and his teacher. So there is a quote-unquote time period in which she has original sin. Now, that's not the teaching of the church. The teaching of the church actually is thanks to a Franciscan theologian, Blessed John Dunn Scotus, the namesake of our podcast, in fact. And Scotus, do you all remember his solution to this problem? Don't look at me. I, just... <laughs> I do not remember. That class was last fall. But it... Oh, yeah, y'all are fresh. <laughs> he yeah. was actually trying to use that as an excuse. But... So isn't it because like, <laughs> like God works outside of time, mm -hmm. so therefore the, like, the redeeming part of the cross, like Jesus dying on the cross for sins, applied to Mary, Yes, even though that was before Jesus died on the cross in like, what would be like our timeline. But like, because God works outside of time, mm -hmm. it therefore saved her before it even took place, like when we would see it. Fantastic. Wow, Matt, yeah, coming through clutch. Time traveling grace. Good. So Mary does experience redemption. All creatures experience redemption. But Scotus says this: the graces of redemption, the graces of the cross are applied to Mary even at 
the very moment of her conception. So think of it like this. When you're, most of us are walking and you fall into the, you know, the pit, so to speak, of original sin. Skoda says, well, can't you save somebody, not just by pulling them out of the pit, but you could save them by keeping them from falling into the pit in the first place. And that's still a redemption of sorts. So that's sort of Scotus's way of talking about the Immaculate Conception. And that's the way that gets accepted officially into church teaching. I don't know. What say you, Andrew? Uh, that pretty much answers the question. Yeah, that was good. You like that? Dr. Whitten, you want to throw in anything? <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> so Hunter, Hunter uh, back in the corner and I were sort of laughing about this. The broad outlines of that argument are actually given by St. Anselm. Um, in That's his right. text on the Virgin Conception, uh, where he talks about this, it, he was he was laughing because in Anselm um, he says you don't fall into the pit. He says we actually jump. Mm. Um, that this is the problem with sin, right? This the, not that we fall, but we we, we jump. But um, and and the point there is 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 I was just making this to my class the other day. The the power of the cross is so intense that it spans time. Right, Jesus didn't just save the people who were there that day in Jerusalem; He saved all of us. That is, the power of the cross comes to us across forward in time, right? But that means the power of the cross also can work backwards in time, right? This was actually the discussion a little bit that um, that we were talking about the other day uh, with Dr. Moser, where he was trying to think about like how did that, you know, it saved the people who came before Christ as well, right? Because the prophets and so on had faith that Christ was coming. Uh, and so the the cross actually saves them going backwards. And so you can see the fullness of grace, right, is the grace of Christ that applied actually to his mother uh, across time. It's a beautiful way of thinking about the power of the cross. As, as one theologian said, um, this one act of love overcomes all the sins that have ever happened. Mm. Power of the cross. I could hear the Franciscan brother Mariano somewhere in New York City saying, Franciscans have three doctors of the church. Dominicans only have two. all right thanks andrew you're welcome (laughs) next question you got to be brave the snaps sound really satisfying (laughs) yeah the snapping sounds really great my top five taylor swift albums i would love to talk to you about it (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) what's your name sir james james thanks for joining us man Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you too. Ever heard of the comedian Brian Regan? <laughs> Brian Regan's got a great episode about when we make responses to people what they say and they totally don't fit. You know, have, <laughs> like like the ticket agent. Have a nice flight. You too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to have a cab at the airport, and the driver goes, "Hey, have a nice flight. You too." You too, you have a nice flight too, in case you ever fly someday. James, what do you got for us? Um, well, this was just personal, well, not personal, just a regular, ordinary question. Uh, so how did the Rome? why did the Romans choose, uh, not choose, uh, decide to go after Jesus and why did the king didn't like Jesus at all? Mm. The king being the king of the Roman Empire or the king of the Jews at the time? I believe it was both, actually. Okay. You all want to take a stab at this? Yeah. So give us the Jewish and the Roman beef with Jesus. 
Yeah. So the Jewish beef with Jesus is that there were powerful people at the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, who were, quote unquote, not vibing, right? They were... <laughs> um, they were very upset because Jesus was saying some really controversial stuff, right? He was making the claim that, you know, he was the son of God, um, which the Jewish Jewish people did not uh, did not take lightly uh, to have someone claim that. So that was definitely something that um, there were many uh, powerful people in uh, the Jewish empire at the time, not empire, but um, who took fight with jesus um or had a problem with jesus because of that um as far as the romans it was just kind of political unrest like you know you have you have different people in your cities right jewish people and all these other kind of people and if there were people who were having beef with jesus like if jesus was quote-unquote causing problems or causing unrest um or even just causing people to fight uh not because of what he was doing, but because it was so controversial, then they would want to nip that in the bud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is good. So maybe you all have heard of C.S. Lewis before, and he's got a famous argument that comes from mere Christianity. It's called the, the Lord Liar Lunatic argument. So he basically says, and this is a paraphrase, given what Jesus says and does in the Gospels, you're left with three conclusions, right? Either he really is who he says he is, he's God, or he was lying about it, and he's deceived everyone, or he's crazy. Like, he thinks he is God, but he's actually not. And so it's going to be one of those three options for Lewis. And I think it's pretty clear in the Gospels that Jesus is making divine claims. So, Catherine, you use the phrase, son of God. That in itself is not necessarily a divine claim for the Jews, because that's a phrase that's used of the Davidic king. Mm -hmm. So if you read the Davidic Psalms, they all speak of... Uh, the king being the son of God. And that comes straight from the covenant that God makes with David. The person that's going to be your heir who will rule forever, God will be like a father to him. And that person will be like a son to God. So son of God was actually just a phrase for the Messiah. But the thing about Jesus, others are calling him the son of God. And usually, you know, in the synoptics at least, and especially Mark, he kind of deflects. You know, like, eh, you know, don't call me that right now. Um, now's not the time. He, he doesn't want them to think that he's the Messiah, the kind of Messiah that they are looking for, right? The one who would be a political earthly ruler. He's a different kind of Messiah. But the things that he does, forgiving sins, mm -hmm. I mean, especially, upset people because that's not something that um, a Davidic king could do. No one forgives sins except God. So he actually does things that only God is allowed to do. Um, he doesn't just repeat the law like an ordinary rabbi or interpret it. He actually gives the law, sort of uh, takes the law into new directions, which makes them really upset. So they know that he's eventually making divine claims, which is why some of the Jewish leadership get mad at him. Not all of them, but... Um, some of the most powerful ones eventually get mad at him and plan to kill him. And then, Catherine, you're spot on with the Romans. Like, if you have someone who is going to be the king of the Jews, well, in this empire, there's only one real king. Mm -hmm. 
and that's Caesar, right? And uh, Herod and whoever comes after him, they are like figurehead kings. Yeah. Right? It was purely political for the Romans. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, for, for the Jewish people, it was more of like a, you're making claims that do not coincide. It was more of a blasphemy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're going to hear some scholars that claim that in the synoptics, Jesus doesn't claim to be God. Totally not true. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense why the Sanhedrin would say blasphemy you know, about him. That's a, a claim that's saying you are considering yourself to be God, and that's why they end up putting him to death. So I, I like Lewis's argument because if Jesus is just a nice guy, like a lot of people interpret Jesus to be these days, like, yeah, 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 I, I respect Jesus. You're like, he's a good teacher. Like, he did really nice things. I mean, Lewis's point is like, nice guys don't claim to be divine and mm-hmm. ask for your total obedience. Like, he's way more than a nice guy. And you don't put a nice guy to death. Mm-hmm. Right, everybody loves a nice guy. They want to be like buddies. You don't kill the nice guy. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a additional, in in some sense, even deeper reason too. You know, as we talked about with the Philippians uh, two the other day, right? He's obedient unto death, and in that obedience to God, I mean, he's proclaiming and living a life that's perfectly just, and not just. And proclaiming justice, right, in a system, in the Roman system, and in the Jewish system, too, uh, at the time, which was in many ways deeply unjust. Um, and that tends to have a cost, mm. right? And in, in, procl- in proclaiming God's love for everybody uh, typically makes people really angry. Mm-hmm. Um, pointing out injustices in a system often makes people really angry as well. So I think all those the reasons we gave this isn't a, to, this is an additional reason to think about it, right? Sure. Uh, there's a theologian named Herbert McCabe says something to the effect of, "If you don't love, you're kind of dead, and if you really do love, people will want to kill you." Mm-hmm. Mm. Amen to that. It's kind of scary, though. Yeah. Well, being a Christian, you know. Yeah. <laughs> James, how we do? Good. Answers your question. Yes, it did. On hey, a, a to F scale, how do we do? Yeah, give us a grade. Y'all got an A+. Plus. Ooh. <laughs> Never had one of those before. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you, James. You're welcome. Who we got coming next? Ooh, Julia, one of our students. Nursing major, Theo Minor. She's going to drop a bomb on us. <laughs> and former TFE participant. And former TFE participant. That's right. What's up, Julia? This is your first time on the show. It is. <laughs> welcome to the Dunces Corner. Thank you. Hey, so since you're one of our students and you're on the show for the first time, what brought you to FranU? The community, honestly. Um, I discerned coming to FranU whenever I was a participant, and I just felt ultimately called on by Francis to come to TF, or one, to come to TFE, and two, to be um, a student and then confirmed. Mm, St. Francis has been working on you. Yes, he has. (laughs) That's awesome. So what are you thinking about? So this question was asked my TFE, but we have no proof that it was ever asked. Oh, (laughs) okay. Whose fault is that? I don't know. I think the guy that runs the Dunson's Corner. (laughs) I think think someone actually forgot to hit record. So So one time I forgot to push record, and the other time we had a bad digital file. It's it's running right now. It's running. 100%. I got it. But we got our backups, Are we sure? And we even got backups. So if this goes down, it's not my fault. Something else is going. <laughs> something else is up. Okay, 
So you're going to ask this question. Go for it. So it's kind of twofold. So one, um, I give credit to the first person who asked this, but one, does God have a gender? And we answered that no, God does not have a gender. Like God the Father or like the Son and the Spirit Mm -hmm. and then God the Father like doesn't have a gender, but Jesus does. But my second question is, because we said no at my TFE, how is that being used as an argument for the LGBTQ movement? Like, why is that right or wrong for them to use that of like, God is trans or all these other things that I've been hearing that I know is not true, but I want to like ask why and like, like provide the evidence again, like why God is genderless. Okay. Got it. Somebody want to take this? Rachel's leaning. Go for it. Yeah. Um, So I think at a, at, at a base level, we say that um, God is genderless because we know that the divine essence is genderless. So um, Christ is the only one who is incarnate into a body in which he receives a gender. And it's him who reveals God as father, mm-hmm. but not in the sense of like. God's he, a man. The father's a man. Mm-hmm. Or exactly. Um so, if you ever take Trinity with this guy, well, not with this guy, awkward. Um, <laughs> Some <laughs> other guy. Not anymore. If you ever take, yeah, the Trinity, we actually talk about this of like, um, it's Jesus who reveals God as Father. But if you read in different, um, well, in different scripture passages, there are like maternal attributes that are attributed to God. And I guess the way that I like to think of it is like, if you think of who the person, like, if you think of God the Father, he is he is a perfect being. Um, so it makes sense for him to have both maternal and paternal attributes, right? Um, so I would say that's that's why we don't um, attribute a gender to God. And I would say that as far as using that for an argument for LGBTQ, um, it's not like he's either or, or he's choosing to be one or the other, or he flips between the two. He just is in existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that because Christ reveals him as God the Father, it wouldn't be correct for us to say God the Mother or like God and use female pronouns um, because that's not the way in which he's revealed to us. So I think that you can say he has maternal attributes, mm-hmm. but I also think that there are men that have maternal attributes. Um, so I don't know. To add to that, I would say, yeah, sex and gender only make sense in the body. Mm-hmm. God the Father, God the Spirit do not have bodies, right? Um, Christ revealed himself humbled himself into human form so christ does have a sex right he is male and again like he reveals the father so it's kind of like as Mm. respect to jesus right that we're like okay we're gonna follow in your footsteps of calling god father um but i mean even to add on to the the question of um saying like is god transsexual um some people might even go to say well god is non-binary god does not have a sex does not have a gender um and i mean in terms of defining terms and all that kind of stuff usually when non-binary is used it's used in addition to 
a body. A body does not have a sex, does not have a gender. Um, whereas with God, right, he does not have a body. And yet, or God the Father and God the Spirit do not have a body. And yet, like Rachel was saying, have those maternal attributes, has those paternal attributes, because we're created in the image and likeness of God. So if God did not possess what is present, the good things that are present in both male and female, then it kind of wouldn't make sense. Yeah. You're, this is a super important point, Catherine. Sex is something that belongs to bodies, mm-hmm. right? So um, think of the various other religions that were present um, in biblical times, both Old Testament and New Testament. So in the Old Testament, um, the various gods and goddesses of the Canaanites and the surrounding peoples, for instance, they thought of their carved idols as being somehow like the physical, like bodily material presence of their god or goddess. And so they tended to assign masculinity and femininity to those gods. So what did the Israelites do? The Israelites never assigned masculinity or femininity to God. They would use imagery that was both masculine and feminine to talk about him, Mm -hmm. not to name him as male or female, but to show that he transcends sex, because sex is a physical thing, Mm -hmm. right? And they know that God transcends all of that. The same thing is true for the New Testament in the face of sort of the Roman pantheon. So it's only in the coming of the flesh of the Son of God, the second person of of the Trinity, that we can say that, you know, God, quote unquote, has a body, has a sex then, right? Because of Christ, because of our Lord Jesus Christ taking on a human nature. Um, That's the sense in which you would speak of, if you're going to speak of God having a sex, so to speak. I guess the only other thing I would add here too is just on like a pastoral note. So I think when we are in dialogue with people from the LGBT community, um, and I remember saying this on the previous podcast that didn't make it to air. <laughs> um, I, I think there's two levels, right, that, that we're working on. Level one is the uh, sort of the level of ideology, and we need to have good, rational understandings of things to make the argument, because we want people to work by reason. Mm-hmm. And I can say full on that there are things in the LGBT community that actually don't mesh well with reason. Like, for instance, even just putting T with L, G, and B, there are already arguments being made by gay and lesbian men and women that the trans community has an ideology that completely differs from theirs, right? So they actually conflict with one another, even though, like in the media, you're going to see them all being lumped together. So we have to have good, rational arguments. When it comes to the person... You know, somebody you know, like in our families, right? And I'm sure we all have friends or family members who struggle with their sexuality or struggle with gender dysphoria. You need not only the truth, but you need radical love to like help that person. I mean, just like an absolute radical love. That's the way that Christianity in the midst of the Roman Empire converted so many people Um it had less to do, I think, with the rational arguments, even though they're super important, but it had to do with the immense amount of love that they showed in the Roman Empire. So, 
when Roman families were leaving babies to die because the father didn't want to claim the child as their own. Uh, Christians took them in. When Romans would leave uh, people of uh, less nobility or status um, unburied, the Christians would go and would bury them, right? And so, Romans began to see like, man, these Christians love so radically. We even have letters from Roman officials saying like, the Christians are winning people over because they're like loving everybody. We need to act like that to keep this from happening. You know, so it's going to take not only the rational argument, which is super important, but it's going to take a radical amount of love to help people to become more integrated, just like we need to become more integrated. Grand Chancellor, you want to add anything in there? No, I think I'll fit all the good points. Okay, cool. Awesome question, Julia. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for the answer. It was great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, come on. I'm going to let her say her own name. Hi, my name is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. How's TFE been for you, by the way? It's been really good. Um, I'm ready to go home and sleep. <laughs> But, yeah. No, the prayer has been so good. I just, I need a process, you know. Yeah, you're speaking mm-hmm. for all of us, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we're all looking forward to our own beds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what you got? Okay. So, this is more of a generic question and definitely differs from the, the gender question. But how would you explain why God lets bad things happen, especially to a person with less understanding of God? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times it's like he uses it to grow our relationship with him, which can be used to be like, well, that's just morbid, honestly. So how would you explain that to someone with little understanding of God? I'm loving this question. You all want to chime in? Hunter's chomping at the bit. You want to come in, Hunter? Yeah, come on. Come on, you are a dunce's corner. Yeah, Hunter. I'm not going to let Hunter come on without talking about his hair, though. We do it every day. (laughs) You have marvelous hair. Come sit in my seat. No, no, no. Wait, did y'all see the new Little Mermaid movie? Because that's what <gasps> Hunter's hair is like giving. Oh, wow. Prince Eric vibes. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me join. So, my name's Hunter, for those that heard everyone else say it. Come <laughs> <laughs> on. Oh, thank yes, you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Gray hair. Yeah, yeah. It's he... almost as good as Dr. Whitten's. I'm saying, <laughs> Hunter's currently making up for Dr. Whitten's lack thereof. <laughs> Yeah, a previous professor um, who's colleagues with uh, Dr. Pedraza and Dr. Whitten was a man, Dr. Sean Blanchard. He used to like to say in class that I had more hair than everyone else in the class combined, which was a bunch of <laughs> older men, deacon <laughs> candidates, so, and himself, who would had just about the same amount of hair as Dr. Whitten. Um, Slows down our thoughts. Go ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a scripture passage about being bald that Dr. Wooden will love to quote. God loves bald men. Make fun of bald men, he'll send bears after you to kill you. <laughs> is, is, that, is that verbatim or is that just... Oh, it's... It's right from Second Kings. Yep, Second Kings. She bears, in fact. Don't mess with So why do bad things happen to good people? How do you explain this to someone who doesn't really believe? Yes. No, I think... I first off want to just acknowledge the question itself and appreciate it um, because it's something that when you look around in society that's it, a it's a real and it's not just a rational you can't just take an irrational approach like dr pedraza was talking about even in the last question you can't just take a rational approach to this question because it affects people 
emotionally on on different levels. So I just want to appreciate um, the question. When I first think of this question, perhaps this is because I was taught by um, someone who was who's a trained Thomist, but I think of um, the wills of God. So God has a permissive will, which means that He permits the world to unfold as it is, and that we've because we've He's given us out of love free choice. Um, he still permits things um, to happen, and this is all because it goes back to Adam and it goes back to sin. Um, so think of a lot of the hard things that happen in our world, much of it can be attested back to our sin. So even like in South Louisiana, we're in an area along the Mississippi River called Cancer Alley. Why? Because the humans in this area have polluted so much. Um, And the air we breathe and the water we drink is polluted. And so it's unfortunate, you know, knowing people that have gone through struggle with cancer, um, but even take something like smoking cigarettes. That sin is increasing your risk for cancer. And so, it's unfortunate that our sin is often, um, you can work your way back to a lot of the horrific things that do happen to people to sin. And some is more clear than others. Um, So, the Holocaust is a most clear example of sin, you know, where humans are abusing their gift of free will um, to the to the most extreme. So, but you can never stop there, because because free will. We often I think sometimes to you know to focus on the question we think of just the the horrific things that happen. But then we have to also understand just how excellent it is when good is chosen. And this is Paul's letter to the Romans so much that because through one man sin entered the world, think about how much greater it is when one man chooses, as we talked about, to be obedient, Philippians Mm -hmm. 2, when one man chooses to love, how much greater it is. And so this is why we have free will. Because a lot of people want to say, well, then why does God give us free will at all then? Um, why can't he just make us robots where we all do good things and we're all happy, um, but we're all superficially happy? Um, but free will offers the opportunity for love that is even greater than any sin or any, um, any suffering that can happen, um, which is why through, through that love and uh, free will that we have the redemption um, that can overcome everything. So, um, so yeah, so I think... Um, to think about, again, uh, God's will, um, that God always wills the good thing, good things. And so there's, um, there's a Jewish theologian whom I can't remember his name, but he kind of poses the question at, or the response to this as, well, either God is all-powerful or he's all-loving. He can't be both. So he's going to choose that God's all-loving because that would make more sense to him. But yet, St. Anselm <laughs> and other theologians throughout all of history would understand that love and power go together. They are both within God's goodness, um, that then which nothing greater can be conceived. He must be all-powerful and he must be all-good. Therefore, goodness and power 
must go together. Love and goodness, love and freedom, love, power, freedom, all must go together. And so, um, so the, that theologian's answer is unsatisfactory because then it offers a, a lack in God and his response. And so, so yeah, so we, we have to understand that, um, all good things also come from God. In Genesis 1, when God created all things, they were good. They were good. And then he got to us and we we're very good. Good, good. And so, <laughs> um, so that which is evil, Augustine says, is actually a privation of good. Mm-hmm. It's a lack of good. So when you turn off the light, darkness is a lack of light. Which is perfect for John chapter 1 uh, <laughs> imagery there. Um, so sin is a lack of the good, um, and that it actually has no substance in itself. Um, and so this is where we can say that all power and substance and existence in God is good, um, because evil actually has no no substance. So there you go. That's a long theological answer. Dr. <laughs> I'm leading a little in. hefty. Oh, I'm sorry. Loving, yeah. Yeah. Give me the mic. I don't know why. I'm loving the theology here. So I. I I'm guessing that Rachel needs help. Like, so if you have a non-believing oh, friend yeah. and like give like a metaphor or something that helps initially, you know, without drawing on theological sources that will help somebody be like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense. Right. I mean, the, the first one that comes to mind for me is being a parent. Like mm-hmm. you don't have to believe that there's a God to know, like as a parent, there comes a point when I can't just like protect my kids from everything. As much as I would like to like pick out their foods for the rest of their life, even when they're like 50 <laughs> or something, you know, or, um, you know, I remember growing up and my mom and she was teaching me to drive anything that was even remotely scary. If a car was like 20 yards away, she'd be like, huh? and she would grab the <laughs> side door, you know, and as much as I would love to be there for my kids, like their whole life, like no sort of like hurts. telling them how to drive, like you can't do it. Uh-huh. You know, so there comes a point in time when your kid is old enough where you're like, I'm going to let you choose this thing and you might even choose poorly and I'm going to let you do it. So like in copying my some good friends of ours, we around Halloween, we have the candy true to them. So it's basically like you get three days of eating as much as your Halloween candy as you want and then we're tossing it or giving it away. Right. So we used to play the game of like, you could have three pieces today and three the next day. It's like, you know what, kid? Have at it. And the first time they pounded the candy the first <laughs> night, like Halloween night. So much so, I mean, we were kind of laughing. Like our boys seemed almost like candy drunk, you know, like they were going around holding their stomachs like, oh, I think I ate too much. I don't feel too good. It's like, now you know, <laughs> like, don't eat that much candy, right? So if, even if a parent can be like, I will allow you to do something, even though I don't want you to do it, then that makes sense. Like, that's a possibility. You could still love someone and allow for that to happen. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's one place that I would go as like a, an example. And then the other place that I would go is, what's your other option? So like, if there's no God... Why would you even say that suffering was bad? It's meaningless. Like, things suffer in nature all the time. Like, a tiger's got to eat. You know, the thing it eats is going to suffer. So, like, what's the big deal? 
Like that <laughs> happens all the time. Like I, to me, it just wouldn't make sense. Like everything suffers. Like I, I don't know why that's problematic. Like I think you have to have a God for suffering to be a problem. Right. Mm-hmm. Can right. I, can I chime in with a couple of thoughts? So one, the way you framed the question was really important. Okay, because. Um, the way you talked about it is not God causing suffering, but God permitting suffering. So we, we get make, it's important to make that distinction because like, I hear people like all the time say like God gives His greatest battles to His best warriors. You ever heard somebody say something like right. that? It's a meme right now. It's a stupid meme. All right, um, to use a theological term. Um, <laughs> right, and the reason is is I mean God doesn't need to use bad things to make good things happen. I mean, if you pay attention to what Jesus did, when Jesus, let's just take the Gospel of Luke, if you've read that, how, what did when Jesus went around, what did he do to people? He healed them. He healed them, right? He didn't actually hurt them, right? He drew people to God by healing them, right? By doing good things, right? So, um, so it's really important. I mean, I mean, quite frankly, why would anybody want to worship a God who intentionally causes their suffering? Right. Okay. Now, on the other hand, right, there's also a role for God's justice. So there are times when we are left with the consequences of our behaviors, right? Just like Dr. Pedraza was talking about with his kids, right? So there are times when we do dumb things, and generally what happens is God lets us have what we ask for. Mm-hmm. Right, and the consequence of that is sometimes really difficult, and we like well, then we blame that on God. We're like, well, hold on, you know, you had you played a part in this. On the other hand, there's also this category of just innocent suffering, right? It's, and that's the one that gives us the most problems, right? We, right? At some level, when we do something unjust and we live with the consequences of that, it's not God's fault. The real the real challenge is like, I mean, my wife had a cousin, um, and her husband was coming home from work one day. Um, working at a hospital, and a crane dropped on his car, and he died just like that. Oh, my word. Right, right. I mean, it's totally random. Yeah. Right? He didn't do anything to deserve that. He was coming back from doing something good. Like, that's the real challenge there, right? Yeah, I was more referring to, like, freak accidents and stuff like that. Yeah, and and we also have to separate out, I mean, there, even that was human fault, right? Okay, because somebody didn't do their job with the crane, Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. Um, So, that's, that's the, it's the question of innocent suffering there. Uh, this that's the the deepest challenge, right? Um, and so, a couple things. One is yes, there are categories where we misuse our freedom in ways that cause innocent people to suffer. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and that's a world as as Dr. Pedrazen is um, as Hunter pointed out, a world without freedom is in fact a world without the possibility of love, right? Because you can't make somebody love you. Love requires freedom, including love for each other, love for God, and so on. Um, so that's that's part of it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there's a larger part of the tradition that also says, even though God may allow some of these bad things to happen, that's not to say that God can't draw good things out of them, right? It's not to say that God causes them, but that God can sort of respond to them. I mean, the ultimate the ultimate solution to the problem of suffering, it, it's, in some sense, it's the wrong question. The question isn't so much like, why does God allow this to happen? The better question is, is what does God do in response to it? And the response to it is that God takes the flesh, he suffers with us, suffers on the cross for us, we can participate in that suffering, and then death doesn't get the last word, right? There's a resurrection. So, as, as it says at the end of the book of Revelation, God makes all things new again. So, death and suffering never have the last word. God always has the last word on death and suffering, and that's the cause of our Christian hope. 
Yeah, the cross is a really powerful symbol of our Christian understanding of God's response to suffering. Yeah, because it's not God, God doesn't keep suffering at arm's length, right? God enters into our suffering with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you, if you have a um, somewhat like comic nerdy friend who's struggling with this, here's one thing that I think is random but kind of cool to think about. So I was talking with a fellow theologian, shout out to Dr. Romero, and we were talking about whether Adam and Eve before the fall, the church teaches that they were impassable. So were they more like Superman or Wolverine is what we were talking about. So it's like, was Adam like, if you threw a rock at him, would it just be like, bing, you know, and bounce off of him or would it be like, ow, and then he would heal, right? And so Dr. Romero was more like, it's Wolverine because... If you take away our physicality and our ability to feel, like, that actually allows us to experience so much good. Like, think of um, uh, the snuggle of a baby, right, against you, <laughs> which is like, oh, or Dr. Witten, who just gave me probably the first hug he's ever given me in his life. <laughs> and so, the last. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Like, that, that allows you to feel goodness, <laughs> but it's the same sensory organs that are going to allow me to feel pain. So, either you've got to have a God who's like, I'll just change the laws of biology and physics, like, every second, depending on what's going to happen, which is going to create other problems for human beings mm-hmm. down the line, because there's no consistency in how physics works. Or you're going to say, the things that allow you to experience good are the, some of the same things that allow you to experience pain. So... I'm kind of glad that I have that. And so I could feel like my son's giving me a snuggle or my wife giving me a kiss on the cheek. You know what I mean? So that's one way to think about it too that I think is a pretty cool question. Okay. Yeah. I think I have, sorry, this is taking a long time, but just one last thing to add on. So Dr. Boone was talking about how God responds to our suffering. Why would, if our God is a just God, why would his response be different for each person, such as when he raised Lazarus from Lazarus from the dead to heal Mary and Martha's and all their friends grief, but also to heal his physical suffering. Or I'm not sure if he was suffering because he was dead, but regardless. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so why would that response be different to all of the other people that have died and all of the other people that have grieved those who died? Like what, what? Yeah. So, yeah. So the, you know, I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think fundamentally because the, at one level, the purpose of that res- resurrection uh, was not so much just for Lazarus' benefit, but for ours, right? It's the, it's the power of the sign there, right? So that that takes place in the context of the powerful signs that, that Jesus is giving, mm-hmm. precisely to show, right, that he's able to 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 resurrect at the end, right? And then in some, that sense, Lazarus, and, and Paul actually says this more about Jesus. He says Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of ours, right? Um, but Lazarus also shows us it's possible for a regular human to be resurrected. So again, um, we all will actually be resurrected. Okay, this is actually also part of yeah. the teaching, right? Everyone, everyone in here at one point will be resurrected, right? So there's also that coming too. Yeah, I, I, one way to say that is, in some respects, his answer to suffering is the same each time. Yeah, death and resurrection, like. Because our Lord decided to take on our humanity and our sinfulness to that extent, and, that, and our suffering to that extent, death, which is sort of the ultimate, like the furthest threshold that suffering can go, like the separation of your soul from your body, instead of it 
being the darkest and the scariest thing that a human being could undergo, he's transformed it in the gate w- into a gateway for eternal life by his resurrection. So his answer is, despite whatever suffering any human being may undergo, and I know all of us in this room have experienced suffering of great sorts, you know, of many different kinds, it all can be transformed by the cross and the resurrection. And this life, which is very important, and I just, I'm in wonder at, you know, the beauties of this life, but it's like a drop in the bucket compared to eternity with God and participating in his divine nature. And he's saying like, he wants this for everyone, you know? So in that sense, his answer is the same, which gives me a lot of hope and encouragement. All right. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> I know there's more that we could say, Rachel, yeah. but it's really good. Really it's, good And questions. it's one of the most challenging questions in, in, in theology. And Aquinas so. even said so, right? He, right. Like he, he says, this, this is the hard question. This right is here. the hard, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you all anyway. Yeah. So. yeah. Thank you. Has anybody got one more? I got time for one more. Okay, come on up. This is a proxy question. Proxy. Is that a product placement? That was a nice intro. <laughs> Bucky's Your Diddy could be right there. There you go. If you're listening. <laughs> oh, can you imagine oh, okay. if we had a podcast sponsored by Bucky's? Fresh sauce on the board. Bucky's, Bucky's. Let's take a trip and get some gas at Bucky's. Bucky's, Bucky's. It's time to see the beaver come on. Beef jerky. And Bucky's plushies for me and you Bucky's, Bucky's Let's take a trip and get some gas at Bucky's Bucky's, Bucky's It's time to see the beaver come on Please sponsor us Please sponsor us That would be Please sponsor us. member of the Dunces Corner Please sponsor us Would the most he's spoken about on the podcast Matt would get another degree at Franu All the ad revenue would just go to Matt He's got to get the first one first I would come back and get a master's in brisket that's right. That's right. I'll join you. I'll get a PhD. Hi, Julia. Hi again. Hi. So I'm filtering this question for Nate. He asked me to ask y'all about, it's kind of twofold again. Um, why is God, Jesus, and Mary predominantly depicted as white? And why are angels commonly depicted as babies and not biblically accurate? Mm. Huh. Anyone want to chime in? I feel like it'd be scary if they were depicted biblically, biblically accurate. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because um, yeah, the biblical response of somebody to an angel is what? Do not be afraid. <laughs> and yeah, that's like, what the angel says. Well, yeah, yeah, because they are they're, afraid. They're, they are afraid. <laughs> the person freaks out and face plants. I was going right? to say, have you ever seen the like, AI um, <laughs> depiction of an angel? It's uh, pretty terrifying. So, no thanks. Lots of eyeballs. Okay. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Well, AI yeah. is, you know, teeth and fingers, right? I don't want to know what they do with an angel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the person face plants. And it doesn't, in Revelation, the angel even tell John, like, don't worship me. Like, I'm not God, right? So it's yeah. supposed to be like, Wah! so who you knows how you actually those pictures would one. have people like with soiled pants. Like there's a brown spot, right? <laughs> Nate, I would be all for pictures of people soiling themselves with angels oh appearing. Oh <laughs> I'm, I'm on yeah. board for that. That but is wanna, biblically but what, uh, Let's go to the, the race question, the ethnic question, too. Wouldn't that be more because of, like, Renaissance paintings and, like, European art typically just depicted them in 
Yeah, I think that that's, way. that's historically why. Yeah. I don't think it's justified, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it's fine if you, you know, our, our Lord, uh, by taking on our human nature, is takes on all of humanity. So, sure, like in uh, a white European country, it may make sense to, you know, depict him in that way. But I think as, you know, we've been having conversations in our diocese, we could use a lot more mm-hmm. um presentations of our lord and our lady in different races different ethnicities i mean when our lady appears in different places she's already doing that right Mm -hmm. yeah that's what i was going to add like at my high school we have this imagery of different our ladies which is like Mm -hmm. asian african mexican hispanic like whatever so because like whenever mary was human on earth she was middle eastern like she had that appearance because that's what she was born as but now that she's in heaven she's able to appear to different ethnicities as the same ethnicity mm-hmm. okay yeah. i mean i think a lot of that's just historically contingent mm-hmm. right i mean in fact it's actually only true if you only pay attention to like churches in america mm-hmm. or in europe so, like, there's a there was a great exhibit in Houston uh, 20 years ago. I saw of icons from Constantinople from the Greek Orthodox Church, right, which is over in like what's modern day Turkey, right. None of those icons de- depicted Jesus as, as as white. He was sort of olive skinned, mm-hmm. right. So the, the the reality is that the tradition actually doesn't always portray him as being white, right. Um, it's only for people who actually haven't looked at the iconographic. Uh, tradition who think that now is that the case in our churches in in a predominantly white country yes but again that is you can also if you look at like a japanese madonna she looks asian you look at that, you yeah. know. so um in other words as as, as dr Pedraza said jesus and, and mary tend to appear in ways that people can understand mm-hmm. we do need to broaden that and not mm-hmm. think that you know jesus is just some blonde dude okay <laughs> i mean but the other the other side to that too is you know i mean for the first seven centuries of the church, it was very much a worldwide phenomenon. But once Islam conquered North Africa, parts of Spain, the only places that were left in Christianity for a period of time were just per, per European. Mm-hmm. So it became it, – it didn't start off as a European uh, religion, but it became that because basically the European armies got their butts kicked all the way across North Africa and Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that also is sort of a historically contingent kind of thing as well. So it got, I mean, Christianity was on the verge of collapse by the 8th century. Um, yeah. And it was primarily just, yeah. I mean, you know, France, mm-hmm. Germany, and, and parts of Italy at that point. Yeah, I, I think maybe, and I, I'm not sure exactly what Nate's point is, but if this is the point, we should follow the cues of our Lord and Our Lady. Right. Like, in appearances, right, in private revelations, the fact that they take on the culture in which they appear, that's an evangelization mm-hmm. strategy, right? That That's the Lord trying to show this is the way to help bring the gospel into this land authentically. And so, yeah, I think you want images of our Lord and Our Lady to be representative of the people in a given place. So, um in a place like Baton Rouge, in which, sure, we've got a lot of white people, but we also have a lot of blacks, mm-hmm. a lot of Hispanics, some Asian, a Vietnamese community. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. it'd be awesome to have those representations. That way, everybody, you know, I'm, I'm making the argument, I want them here at this university. We like, I, I want the saints of different cultures and different time periods here. That way, anybody who comes to this university can say, like, I can be a saint. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm called to holiness. Like, and I can see somebody like myself here 
and they made it. They lived a life of heroic virtue, and I can do that too. So, yeah, I'm all I'm all for that. And we were literally just having this conversation about yeah. an hour ago, Dr. Right. Pedraz and I, like mm-hmm. about getting different kind of saints up on the walls here. And going back to angels, why would they like, or why would artisans choose babies and not like adults or like anything but a baby? Like to even though the biblical description is very scary, why haven't we chosen something that's a little bit more? Like I know that like for um, the manger, like the angel Gabriel is kind of depicted as like a guy, but like in general, why aren't they always like, I see like a cherub. Yeah, like cherubs. Why are cherubs always babies? I don't know the history yes. behind that. Chubby babies with wings. Yeah. Probably, They're kind of scary too. Probably like I Greek wouldn't influence. want a baby flying around. Yeah, I guess. If a chubby baby with wings appeared to me, I don't think I would faceplant though. I wouldn't be like, ah! I'd probably just try to catch it, you know? Like, <laughs> well, it also has the ability to like, have bodily fluids fall on you because they are babies. Yeah, that's that's baby cherub drool get you every time. Cherub <laughs> drool. <laughs> I would want that a baby on the ground, drool. not in the air. Right. So, <laughs> with that being said, and us not having a great historical answer for um, the cherub chubby babies, I do want to say TFE this year, man, the Holy Spirit has been moving and. This group of students who have come to us has been a real blessing to us. We've seriously been impressed by all of you and the ways that you have come together, have prayed together, have encouraged one another, have served, have sweat, got paint all over the place. Like, so moved by it, and I'm so grateful for the chance to have spent this past week with y'all. So, shout out to TFE 2023 one more time. Let's get hyped for them. God bless y'all, and we will see you next time on the Dunces Corner. Peace.